Welcome to the Counter Narrative Podcast, a show designed to change the way we talk and think about education. By sharing stories of successes and triumphs, we aim to challenge the dominant narrative that often negatively portrays our disenfranchised populations. I'm your host, Charles Williams, an educator for 15 years, a current school principal in Chicago, and an educational consultant. Let's get started. This episode is a pause to ponder segment. These bi-weekly sessions will allow me to share with you my personal thoughts and reflections on a wide spectrum of topics as they relate to education. It is my hope that you will be able to take something from these segments and apply it in a meaningful way as you continue to do amazing work. Remember, while we all have different roles, we all have a single job, educating our students. I've spent 15 years as an educational professional, and I cannot recall dedicating time to learning about the role that the brain plays in education. I mean, there there were classes about human development and how the brain matured over time. And of course, there were courses about various sections of the brain and how short and long-term memories are processed. But what, what I recently have come across, and something, to be honest, that fascinates me, is how the brain works to not only process information, but how it responds to external stimuli and how those two factors have drastic impacts on a child's learning. Let me explain. Now, the, the first part of this will be a little clinical, so bear with me. Uh, while reading chapter two of Zaretta Hammond's book, Culturally Responsive Teaching and the Brain, I, I was intrigued by the concept of the brain having layers as a result of our human evolution. You see, the first layer consists of the brainstem and the cerebellum. This is referred to as the lizard brain. Um, And that's because those two sections are the only two parts of a reptilian brain. Now, these structures, they don't think. They simply react. They are always on. Think about when you're sleeping. You know, you, you might wake up because of a loud noise. That's the lizard brain. You you don't stop to think about your breathing or digesting or seeing. No, because the lizard brain does all of those things automatically. See, the key to these structures responding to our environment is something called the reticular activating system, also known as the RAS. And what it does is continuously scans our environment for any relevant changes that may signal a potential threat or a reward. Have you ever watched the show Brain Games? One of my favorite parts of that show is when the host would make changes to a person's environment to see if they would notice. For example, he might duck behind a counter to grab a pen and emerge with a different color shirt. Sometimes he might actually have someone else come up entirely. And of course, some people wouldn't notice at all. Others may sense that something was wrong, and even others would call out the change. Because while all of our brains are hardwired to detect changes in our environment, the way our brains have learned to process that information and the sensitivity to those changes vary by our experiences. You see, when our students exist in environments that present frequent threats to their physical, emotional, or even their social well-being, 
their brains become hyper-tuned to assess shifts in their surroundings. Now, the second layer is one that is only found in mammals. It's the limbic region, also known as the emotional brain. This region's function is to store memories of events that uh, resulted in either positive or negative outcomes and helps us to determine how to respond in future scenarios. Within this layer exist three structures, the thalamus, the hippocampus, and the amygdala. Now, the, the thalamus simply sends all incoming information to the respective locations in the brain. Um, it's kind of like the, uh, the central hub. The hippocampus is responsible for both short-term memory or working memory and long-term memory. Um, it, it's important to talk about, and we won't dive into it very much, but that working memory is critical because it's during that time that the brain's actually trying to connect new information with existing knowledge or long-term memory to create relevance. If it doesn't stick, it's lost. The third thing is the amygdala. Now, it's responsible for processing fear and is probably going to be one of the most critical components of what we're talking about today. It has the capacity to bypass the thalamus and send a stress hormone called cortisol directly to the lizard brain, resulting in that fight, flight, or freeze response. When this happens, all cognitive functioning stops. No learning, no problem solving, nothing. Now, I want you to think about this for a moment. We already know that many of our students have sensitive reticular activating systems, or the RAS, conditioned over time by consistently experiencing environmental threats. Now, consider that the part of the brain responsible for responding to those threats has the capacity to override the entire brain to respond to even a perceived threat. It should be no surprise then that some of our most at-risk students are those who are prone to entering these uncontrolled learning-stopping moments. Now, the third layer, the neocortex region, is home to executive functioning. This is also known as the command center because this is where those higher order thinking and working memory is all managed, you know, abstract thinking, um, planning, all of those things. And it, it is responsible for understanding how learning occurs. Um, but I want us to focus on another brain structure, the nervous system, because all of these different systems work in combination. So the nervous system receives signals from the environment and relays all of that information back to the brain. Working with the RAS and the amygdala, the brain system actually engages in a process known as neuroception or our safety threat detection system. For this to happen, the nervous system actually is broken down into three branches, the parasympathetic, the sympathetic, and the polyvagal. Now, the parasympathetic system focuses on keeping us relaxed, and it tries to satisfy our basic needs, you know, food, shelter, community, connectedness, those types of things. This system is responsible for releasing endorphins, uh, like dopamine, right? Those feel-good things. The sympathetic system focuses on keeping us alert and prepared to respond to those perceived threats. This is the system responsible for releasing adrenaline and cortisol. And the third one, the political system, focuses on connections or, or social engagement, if you will. And this system is responsible for releasing uh, oxytocin. So 
What does it all mean? We as educators need to be cognizant of our students' environments. While we can't control every aspect of every day, what we can do is to help create settings that are conducive to learning by minimizing potential perceived threats. For example, we can create classroom settings and school cultures that promote positive relationships among all individuals. And, and there's a few ways that we can do this. One of the first is to be alert of possible microaggressions. These are subtle and, and thus often overlooked or even misunderstood. Um, and they are attacks that can be verbal or nonverbal. Without understanding your students and their unique backgrounds, seemingly innocent comments or behaviors can, in reality, be intentionally damaging. Take, for example, the, the popular term in hip-hop, WAP, right? It's a dance. My students would frequently break out in their dance moves while chanting WAP, 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 <laughs> right? Until the day that I explained to them that the word is also a derogatory term for those of Italian descent. Now, we don't have any students who meet that demographic in our school, but I felt it was important for them to understand that their words could be misconstrued if used in a different environment. You know, students also have an interesting way of developing nuanced methods of bullying. I recently had a student who enjoyed posting selfies with a very large smile, but she became the target of cyberbullying without us even knowing, the staff. And, and so we started hearing students say, cheese in the building. You know, initially we chalked it up to kids being kids, right? Just doing some weird colloquialism and, you know, whatever, right? Just kid stuff. But it wasn't until we noticed that our student was visibly upset and we investigated the issue that we realized what was truly happening. See, another method of establishing positive relationships is demystifying the unknown. Now, remember that the political system thrives on social connections, right? That's just a natural need for all humans. But you may also remember how awkward it was to be a kid uh, in school. When we strive to be connected to others, we were also deeply afraid that those traits and interests uh, of ours were unique and that being different was not acceptable. So that internal conflict is the source of, of much of the anxiety felt by students, which, as a result of that perceived threat about not being accepted, can interfere with the natural learning process. So to combat this, there, there are a number of activities, right? Icebreakers, if you will, that are designed to reveal these often secret aspects of our students' lives that are the source of that anxiety. So one of my favorites is simple. Um, we have students write down something on a sheet of paper, which they think only applies to them, and they put it in some type of container. Those statements are then read out loud, and, and students are encouraged to stand up when it applies to them. So now I always encourage my teachers to participate, and I even jump in if, if I'm monitoring or, or, or even observing one of these activities. And, and I can recall the surprise students had one time when I stood up about playing some video game. You know, they, they looked at me and they were like, wait, you, you play this as well? And I was like, yeah. Right. And, and so it, it demystifies that notion that maybe I'm the only person um, in the classroom or in this environment who has this thing apply to me. And so you end up with unexpected connections, but it also reinforces that concept that while we may be unique, we're not really alone in that uniqueness. 
Another thing that we can do is establish classroom routines and processes in order to minimize perceived threats. When students know what to expect, there's a sense of security, and their RAS is less likely to be triggered. So this can include simple things like daily routines on how to submit assignments, how to collect needed materials, or, or even entering the classroom. You could even have school-wide routines. So for example, we begin every morning by gathering in our caffeinazatorium. That's the name I gave our multi-purpose room because it serves as all three, a cafeteria, a gymnasium, and an auditorium. So every morning we gather there after breakfast for our daily announcements. We do our pledge. We do our school creed. And I can always sense the tension in the building on those rare occasions that we're forced to do it without meeting or even if I just wasn't there to lead it because it starts the day off in a different way. And I could tell that those students are, are, are alerted to something not being right in their environment. Now, I understand that there are times that routines may be disrupted. So I think it's important that whenever possible, that those should be communicated to students in advance so that they can mentally prepare themselves for the shift in expectations. When it's not possible, what we need to remember is that we need to be prepared to address the various responses that students are going to exhibit due to their heightened levels of anxiety, as opposed to being frustrated by their inability to adjust. Now, lastly, while we cannot always prevent threats in the environment, we can control how we respond to them. One of the most threatening instances that could occur in a classroom is a physical or a verbal altercation. I've seen staff members respond to these intense situations in a variety of ways, right? Some, in an attempt to get the classroom that now might be all riled up, have actually started yelling at the students in the classroom. Well, not surprising, this has little to no effect on the classroom, which in turn only upsets the teacher even more, which then upsets the students even more, and then you can see that cycle, right? We, we, we need to remember that students may respond to the, a shift in their safety by becoming hostile themselves or, or even attempting to be perceived as hostile so that they don't become victims, even if there's little chance of that actually happening. I've also witnessed staff members attempting to resume class as if nothing has happened. Again, this typically doesn't end well, right? As discussed earlier... Students whose amygdalas are triggered by that fight, even if they don't show signs of hostility or aggression, can be experiencing flight, right? They want to get out of that space immediately, or, or they could even freeze. And that's where I'm not responding to stimuli anymore. So regardless of fight, flight, freeze, their brains are no longer primed for learning. So instead of adding to the stress in the classroom or attempting to ignore the situation, the best response is to address the situation. My preferred method is holding a circle, and it's done wonders for my school. You now, after an altercation in the classroom, students and staff, we, we, we all sit down and we share how we're feeling. So I would highly recommend that this is a practice uh, that is conditioned in our students beforehand so you know they know how to proceed but it allows students and staff members to process their emotions and engage in self-regulating practices like breathing exercises these allow the brain time to realize that the threat has passed and for the adrenaline and the cortisol to pass through the body system 
It's imperative that we, as educators, understand that these basic biological functions are present in all of our students. We must also remember, however, that groups of our students are far more susceptible to these natural responses as a result of frequent exposure to their perceived threats. We commonly refer to this as trauma, right? So because of this, some of our students may respond in unexpected ways and may do so to situations that we do not fully understand. However, by building strong relationships with our students, fostering environments that promote positive interactions, and embedding social-emotional practices into our buildings, we can better prepare all of our students for success. This is why I continuously say we must get curious, not furious. I want to thank you for listening to the Counter Narrative Podcast. If you like what you're hearing, please be sure to like and subscribe on your favorite podcast platform. You can also follow the show on Twitter at the CN Podcast and the host at underscore CW Consulting. Take care.